Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa. Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Lisa. And this is Anxiously, the podcast where we talk about all the things that make us feel anxious. So Lisa, how are you doing? Well, it's been an interesting time. We got Lily's bat mitzvah date. Already? (laughs) Already. I'm not ready. And it just, it sent me into a little bit of a spiral because first of all, I can't believe she's turning 10 and it's two years away. That's completely mind boggling. And then it has really driven home how much I don't know. She and Liel are able to talk about what her Torah portion will be, and they're just both very conversant in it in a way that I am not at all. And I grew up going to Hebrew school. I had a bat mitzvah, although I went to an Orthodox shul, so I wasn't allowed to read from the Torah. But I don't know. It's just giving me some anxiety, I guess. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> well, it's, no, it's funny. I um, I did not have a bat mitzvah. My family was too traditional. <laughs> we, you know, my parents are Soviet Jews, and they grew up in very traditional homes. But because it was Soviet Russia, they had to hide that. And then when they came to America, it was very much about assimilating. But also, like, we had a very, very traditional home. Girls didn't have bat mitzvahs. Like, that just sort of, in their experience growing up, that just wasn't how it was done. Boys had their, you know, secret bar mitzvahs, I guess, but girls didn't. So, yeah, I I never had that experience, which is really interesting for an American Jew (laughs) growing up. It sounds like we have some anxieties about being, quote unquote, good Jews or about how we practice Judaism in today's world. Yeah, totally. I'm going through a process lately. It's sort of amorphous, but Liel, my husband, has been deepening his own faith and observance over the last several years. And, you know, admittedly, in the beginning, it was it was kind of hard for me because, like, I grew up with tradition and, you know, we would light the Shabbat candles and we would celebrate the holidays and we would go to shul every Friday night. But I don't know. I feel terribly ignorant. And I think that ignorance is making me feel anxious because I'm feeling like maybe I'm I'm not allowing myself some measure of richness and joy and meaning that would come with being more religious. But at the same time, like the idea of being religious and being observant gives me a lot of anxiety. And I keep trying to dive into why that is, like where that anxiety is coming from. And I have some ideas. I think a lot of it has to do with having grown up immersed in the values of Western civilization and being told over and over that my education and the ideals of the Enlightenment were what truly mattered and what would give my life meaning. You know, I would go to school and I would read and I would look at art and listen to great symphonies and then I would get a good job using, you know, my degree and and that would give my life meaning. And, and now, I don't know, I'm at this point where I'm just questioning <laughs> if that was correct and, and if I'm not missing out on something much, much bigger and much, much more important. Well, there's so much tension there and so many layers. Like Judaism is this very, very ancient and very rich, complex religion that you could study and study and still not know everything. So I think it's so common to feel that that ignorance that you were talking about, because I think, again, even having grown up in a very traditional home with a dad who sort of taught me a lot about the Bible and Jewish history, I still have huge gaps in my knowledge as well. And it can feel intimidating 
especially in a setting like a synagogue or certain communal gatherings where it seems like everyone knows all the words yeah. to the prayer. And you know, it can the Hebrew, the fact that there's another language. <laughs> yes. This <laughs> ancient language. Yeah, yes. This ancient language with a totally different alphabet. And and some of the prayers are in Aramaic. Like it's not, <laughs> not even Hebrew. Like, yeah, no, I think there are a lot of roadblocks there that cause people to shy away from the practice of Judaism. I mean, we live in a very modern world. And I do think religion and faith often take a backseat and are often things that we feel uncomfortable with. Like, yeah. God is an uncomfortable topic sometimes, right? You've hit the nail on the head. I think there's a discomfort and I've assigned this sort of ickiness to the idea of it. And it makes me really uncomfortable. And I think because we've grown up in this very secular world and put so much stock in it, I think... A lot of secular people see religion or religiosity as primitive in a way. I will speak for myself there. I think I did. I mean, I always felt like I was spiritual. And and certainly, I think spirituality has become sort of cool. Yes. But— in a in a godless way, in like a in like a Gwyneth Paltrow selling her yeah. candles or whatever, yeah. <laughs> her jade. Um, I mean, the other interesting thing about Judaism, of course, is that it's also a very deep culture that has been around forever. And I think a lot of secular Jews find their way into Judaism and, and feel connected Jewishly through cultural touchstones. I mean, you hear people say like, I'm a bagel Jew, I'm a Seinfeld Jew. Sure. I'm fascinated by all that and that tension there too, because it's like, can you have one without the other? Like there isn't really Judaism without the sort of religious underpinnings of it. What links all Jews around the world is our religion. Right. And that's what's kept Jews alive, I guess, for so many centuries, because I don't, I as much as I might have identified as a bagel Jew in some sense for <laughs> some part part of my life, I don't feel like there's any there there, at least not enough there there to keep Judaism going for another however many millennia without the religion. Right. Well, there are no easy answers. We are not the first people to grapple with these questions, nor will we be the last. But thankfully, we have the perfect guest today. We have a rabbi here to help us with some of these thorny questions. Baruch Hashem. <laughs> yes, exactly. Rabbi Sari Laufer is the Director of Congregational Engagement at Stephen Wise Temple in Los Angeles. Rabbi Laufer is a teacher of those young and young at heart. She brings her passion for rabbinic texts, social justice, and Judaism's wisdom and relevance in the 21st century into the lives of those with whom she's privileged to learn and to share. She's written for Kveller.com, MyJewishLearning.com, JTA, and she was the rabbinic advisor for the Kveller Haggadah. And we are so grateful to have her here to talk to us about religion and our anxieties about being good Jews. And here's our conversation with Rabbi Laufer. Welcome, Rabbi, to Anxiously. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Talk anxiety. Because who doesn't like talking anxiety? <laughs> we never get bored of it. There's so much. There is so much. And we were talking about how being Jewish and the practice of Judaism can sometimes engender anxiety 
in the sense of, are we not good enough Jews, quote unquote? Like, do we know enough about the Bible? We're not observing Shabbat in the right way. Or at all. (laughs) Or at all, exactly. What would you say to someone who's struggling, you know, maybe to learn more about Judaism, whether it's someone who grew up Jewish and wants to go in deeper or a Jew by choice? Where would you kind of start? So I'm going to start with a a teaching from Rabbi Hillel, who is an ancient rabbi. He's he's kind of the popular one of the crowd. Like if there's a popular crowd, he's kind of the leader. He talks a lot about learning. Actually, most of our ancient rabbis do because they really were learners. And he says at one point, Ein habayshan lomed, which translates to one who is timid can't learn. And I've always understood it. The one who's afraid to ask the question, like who's afraid to even dip their toe in, you can't learn. Not because you're bad and not because you're wrong, but because you have to be willing to put yourself out there a little bit in order to take in. Often when I'm teaching a class or working with a group of students, especially if they're people I haven't learned with before, I sort of say, like, if you have the question and if you think it's the most basic question that everyone else in the room knows the answer to, I want you to ask the question. That's my translation of Ein Habayshan Lomade because someone else in the room is too afraid to ask the question. And I guarantee as soon as someone asks that question, that is the most basic, like, what does Shabbat mean? What day of the week is Shabbat? Right? It doesn't matter what the question is. Someone else's shoulders in the room go down because they have been carrying that same anxiety of, I don't know enough. I don't know what that word meant. I don't know what they're talking about. And so there has to be someone in the room. I try, but I talk. I'm from New York. I talk fast. (laughs) I'm trying to cram a lot in. And so I need that person to say, I didn't understand what that meant. That really resonates with me. I feel like there's so much I don't know. And it's so hard to be that person, right? Because I think we are, especially adult learners, we walk in the room and we, we come in with our own expertise in different parts of the world. But I think sometimes we walk into Jewish spaces and feel like, I know nothing. Yeah. And everyone else knows more than me. What was your own Jewish journey like? How did you come to be a rabbi? I grew up on the Upper East Side of New York. It's such a Jewish environment that it wasn't until I was like 10 or 11 that I realized not everyone went to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. Like (laughs) I remember being in school a couple of days after Rosh Hashanah and someone being like, oh, what did you do on Tuesday? And in my head, I was like, well, like there's only one answer to that. And someone else like, oh, we went to the park. We went here. And I was like, wow. I think I fell in love with Judaism from an academic lens, which is probably fitting with who I am. When I went to college, I took intro to Judaism because I was like, well, easy A, like no problem. And the first half of the class totally was, right? The midterm was like, what is Yom Kippur? And I was like, all right, I got this. And then we switched and started doing like philosophy and theology and things that I really had not learned. And all of a sudden I was like, I'm going to have to study for this final, like really study and I just, I found myself really drawn to Jewish studies as as an academic side. And, you know, at some point in my college career, when I was trying to figure out like, okay, what do I do? A friend of mine was sort of like, well, like, maybe you should think about rabbinic school because she saw that I really loved the learning. And so that's sort of how I, I really fell in love with the learning and, and the rest of it, the practice and the living then fit in and made a little more sense to me. That's wonderful. Do you ever feel living in L.A. like there's an incongruousness between living in this city and doing this really meaningful work? And how does faith factor in when so much of modern life is filled with convenience and cheapness and kind of like grotesque thrills? I would argue that it doesn't matter if you live in Los Angeles in, you know, 2021 
or maybe New York in the 19th century or Germany in the 18th century, right? That, that question of Judaism's encounter with modernity is one that we've all been working through. One of the things that I love, and I, I can't cite the actual teacher, and I should because you should always cite your teacher, I've always learned and really been drawn to the idea that Judaism has always been countercultural, that it was designed to be countercultural. That's part of why it works as an ancient technology, and I think in some ways even more so as a modern technology, because I actually think amidst all of the like cheapness and the convenience and the I want it now, we actually are all searching for something much deeper. People go all sorts of different places to look for it, and I think a lot of my work ends up sort of being saying to people, like, it's here too, right? Like, we have it, you know, it's fine. Like, go to the yoga studio, you know, go to your ashram, like, access it however you want, but know that it actually is, like, within our tradition too and part of my job. But I actually think our job is to figure out, okay, how do I translate some of those ancient ideas into this modern world. Do you see that your congregants are able to bridge those worlds? Like, how does your community seem to grapple with these tensions? I mean, I think yes and. I do wish that when people thought about wellness, they really, really consciously included spiritual wellness. I think a lot about that as someone who, you know, has done the boutique fitness thing for a long time. So I get the sort of like, okay, but I can go here and I can get my spiritual or I can get my physical and emotional stuff, but I wish there was more focus on the spiritual wellness. In terms of people bridging it, I think there's the question of if people want to or not. Whether I like it or not, I sometimes think that sort of institutional Judaism has gotten this bad rap, right? Like that it's just going to be boring or I'm not going to know enough. I don't mean to disparage yoga at all, but I can go to the yoga studio and have similar ideas sort of given to me in a way that I can process them. And it sometimes makes me sad because I'm like, but also come learn with us or, you know, come access this tradition that is already yours. And maybe it'll actually deepen your yoga practice. I think people who are seeking it can find it, but you also need the right guides. And, and not everyone is the right guide, right? I'm not the right guide for everyone, but you need to like find that person who can help you translate it. The idea of becoming more observant, keeping Shabbat, keeping kosher, learning Hebrew, it can be really overwhelming. Do you think that it's possible to have faith without practice or does the faith have any real meaning without observance? It's a particularly hard question because I think most people come to me sort of with the opposite question. I'm fine with the doing, but I don't know what I believe. This is sort of the reverse of that question. You know, I think my challenge with that is that I do think Judaism lives in action. I want to say it's Cornell West who says that Justice is what love looks like in public. Action is what faith looks like in public. But I think action has really broad terms, right? I don't know that it necessarily has to be like, I'm going to observe Shabbat according to this, the strictest sense of the law, but rather, how does my faith guide the way that I want to walk in the world? Part of what has become a stumbling block for me is so much of Jewish practice can feel when you're not in it and you haven't been raised in it. And I'm sure so many people find so much richness and joy and meaning in it, but like it can also look 
confining and I'm struggling with that. I guess the idea that if I can study more and then find sort of my own way to, but then I don't know, then does halacha lose its meaning? If you say, well, I'm not going to keep Shabbat strictly, but I'm going to say no phones and maybe I'll go be in nature on Shabbat, which feels like to me a meaningful way to observe Shabbat, but maybe that's just being lazy and selfish. So look, you're going to get a different answer probably from me than if you were talking to a different rabbi. So like two Jews, three opinions, right? Right. (laughs) Particularly around like the role that, you know, I think part of the question and just to, I always translate, right? Halakha means Jewish law. So part of the question, I think, is defining the relationship that you have with halakha, right, with this system of Jewish law. And that goes even deeper into, like, who has authority in my life, right? Whose voice and whose call and whose obligation do I respond to? In the strict halachic system, I'm going to say, like, I believe that Torah was given by God. But I also, I think there can be a loneliness of observance, And I think this year in particular, but in general, right, if you are not immersed in a community that has a similar practice to yours, I think it can feel really lonely. I had a very traditional Shabbat practice for much of my time in rabbinic school. And there's, I can still picture this one Shabbat. It must have been sort of winter-ish. So it was getting dark early, which means Shabbat ends early. But, you know, my roommate at the time had gone to meet friends and I didn't use the phone and I didn't drive. So I was like sitting and reading, which was lovely, except that then it was too dark to read, but like not dark enough that Shabbat was over, right? And I remember feeling this sense of like, I'm not sure that this is what Shabbat is really supposed to be about. And so one of the things that I think about in terms of all sorts of questions of observance, whether it is kashrut, the Jewish dietary laws, whether it is laws of Shabbat, whether it is prayer, right? I like to ask the question because even when I study Shabbat with very liberal audiences, people get very caught up on some of the minutiae, right? Because they've heard stuff or they ask the question like, am I allowed to tear toilet paper? That's always a big one. Or like, can I turn on the light? And I'm like, let's step back. (laughs) And before we get into that minutiae, let's talk about what Shabbat is The question I like to ask myself, and I think it fits into this wellness piece, and I don't think it's selfish because I do think it is done in communal context, right? It's not just what does Shabbat mean to me, but like what can Shabbat or Kashrut or prayer, right? What can my observance of Jewish ritual open up for me? I've just come to the place of like rather than thinking about what it closes off, which it does. There are parts of it that can be constricting, but I have gotten to this place of like, okay, but also going back to the Judaism as countercultural, what could it actually open up? What does it allow me to do that maybe I couldn't do before? I don't know if that really answers your question. It does. It totally does. So I grew up very traditional, going to an Orthodox shul. And something I struggle with, though, is I find shul boring often. I feel guilty saying that. Are there ways to make it more engaging? And if so, what what are some ideas that you would recommend? Shul can be boring because I don't know the prayers and I don't know Hebrew. And so like a bunch of people are mumbling and I don't really know what's going on. Or I know it so well because I've been doing it my whole life that like it's boring. So (laughs) first I will cite my teacher and friend, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, who every year before the high holidays posts, what are we reading in Shoal this year? Mm. Shoal being the Yiddish for synagogue, right? Where he's like, there are going to be hours and hours and hours for those of us who that's our practice. Like, 
There's literally no way our brains, especially in this day and age, our brains can't do that. And so he gets a list of like, what are people reading? And sometimes it's like really deep Jewish philosophical texts. And sometimes it is an article that we've been wanting to read forever, right? So like there's something about being in the community and, and connecting with something deep and having the sounds around us. So that's one. The other thing that I have really taken to offering people when I'm leading services, and especially when I know there are a lot of people in the community who aren't usually there, right? So maybe it's a bar or bat mitzvah, right? Maybe there's, I sort of say like, here's the prayer book. It can be a choose your own adventure to some extent in the sense of I say like, and this is particularly in the, in the liberal traditions, I say, you know, I'm going to announce some pages and you can always catch up. And so that if you get lost in a prayer or a reading or a poem, right, if there is something that is speaking to where you are right now, like stay in it, let your mind wander, use the time for that reflection, and then you'll catch up with us. I hope that's an invitation for people to realize that part of being in synagogue is like you are a person who is there to help other people pray, right? Because mm -hmm. we need 10 people. But that the the Hebrew for prayer is a reflexive verb, right? It's like a, it's an internal verb. And so you can do your internal work while the community is somewhere else. And like eventually you're going to catch up. That is actually really anxiety relieving because I think it's like the good student in me who always feels like I have to be on the right page and I have to be, you know, doing all the right things. And like, it's okay to have your your moment and space out and daydream. Like that's part of it. And I think accepting that is so important. And I think that's actually like a really deep prayer. If you leave a synagogue and you say like, wow, I never got off page 64 because like <laughs> that like really roiled something up inside of me, like you've done really deep spiritual work. What would you advise when a married couple or a domestic partnership or, you know, a parent and child, like anyone in a household has different levels of observance, of faith? Obviously, there's intermarried couples as well. I know it's a very complex and layered topic, but what, what are some sort of top line things you would say? There's a Jewish concept, an overarching Jewish concept called Shalom Bayit, right? That there should be peace in the house. I think sometimes the the ways that gets translated out are not always the healthiest, but I do think I'm going to say what I sometimes say to couples about finances, right? Like that sometimes we need to have yours, mine, and ours. First, we need to agree on like maybe what the house is going to look like. You know, if one keeps kosher and one doesn't, like maybe are we just going to be a vegetarian in the house because like that's just easier, but you're going to eat what you want to eat out of the house, right? Like figuring out the home stuff. And then also, how do we help support each other with the yours and mine, right? Does it mean like, okay, I'm going to take the kids for a couple hours on Saturday because I know that going to synagogue is really important to you. It's not as important to me. That'll be my time. And, you know, here's what I need on a Tuesday night for my own spiritual or emotional wellness. So I do, I think that's sort of where I would go with it is like, what do we want our time and our shared space to look like and feel like? And then how do we help support each other in the places that like are going to be for us? We were talking about being a good Jew and the guilt around that. What do you think that's all about? Why so much guilt? How do you give yourself a little bit of a break? So I'm going to cite... One of my dearest friends and colleagues and, and a mentor of mine, Rabbi Leora Kay, who teaches, and I teach in her name often, that there really is no such thing as a good Jew or a bad Jew. There are people who make good choices and bad choices in the world. And I think there are people who make sort of informed, really thoughtful Jewish choices and some people who make lazy choices. And that's not a value judgment. I think some of the guilt is a generational guilt is, you know, the idea of like my great grandparents did this and that, right? Like, and you sort of 
am I diluting it? Am I, do I know less? But I think when I think about it as sort of a choice of like convenience or laziness versus a really honest wrestling, right? Like you may really wrestle with Kashrut and, and come to a place where you say like, I don't accept the premise of the question to some extent, right? Like the foundational premise of it that doesn't speak to the world I live in, the spiritual life I'm creating. But again, how do I actually engage with the underlying questions of kosher, of keeping kosher or of, of having a dietary system, right? Rather than just, oh, hey, I think this tastes good, so I want to eat it. Engaging with the question of, well, why do I make this choice and not that choice? And so I think a lot about that when I think about like the language of good Jew or better Jew. I'm like, I don't think it's good or it's better. I think sometimes it's just people put more or less time into their commitment to it. How do you wrestle with that question? Like, actually, nuts and bolts. Do you have to be super educated, do you think? Or read all of the texts? I don't think so. I mean, I think you have to do some reading. It depends. I always say when I'm on the subway, people often have like religious texts with them. But we as Jews don't read text. We study it. We learn it. And we learn it in partnership. So that's why I said, like, I think you need to find the right guide. So I think, like, when you're starting to engage in whatever the question is, maybe it's Shabbat, maybe it's prayer, maybe it is around, like, mindfulness and blessings, right? Is figuring out, like, okay, who's the guide who's going to start me on this conversation? Who's going to ask me the right questions? Who's going to give me the right things to read so that I'm not just swimming in this sea of 2,000 years of writing in languages I may or may not know. You know, I think there's a lot of really beautiful modern stuff that does some of that work for us. I think we're lucky. I do not ever suggest just Googling it, though, right? Rav Google is rarely the right guide. <laughs> Rav Google shows you all sorts of stuff. But that idea of like, okay, we're meant to study and meant to learn in, in what's known as chavruta, in partnership. So who are my partners in this? I feel like we could talk so much longer. I'm sad that we have to wrap up. But... Well, you can call me anytime. Oh, and, uh... thank you. I think you might regret making that offer. <laughs> I, I promise I will not. Wow. I want her to be my rabbi slash therapist. <laughs> I'm really searching for somebody to guide me, so she might be getting an email. <laughs> I know. I know. I just want to hang out with her. It was helpful to hear. Like, Judaism has 613 commandments. I don't know if there's any Jew that keeps all of them, but I do think it was kind of nice to talk about how much interpretation and room there is to kind of bring your own take and your own entryway into being Jewish, however you interpret that. Yeah, that's very reassuring. I mean, again, it could just feel so overwhelming. Yeah, and I think a lot of people of all faiths wrestle with these exact questions. So it's an ongoing conversation. Indeed. So what are you going to do this week to help you feel a little bit less anxious? To keep it on theme and on brand about <laughs> Jewish stuff, something my husband and I have been doing in quarantine is... We light candles every Friday night, which is the start of the Jewish Sabbath. And then something that I really love is Havdalah, which is sort of the 
parallel ceremony on Saturday night that closes out the Jewish Sabbath, and you light a candle and you smell spices to kind of wake you up and bring you back into the working week, and you say a prayer, have wine. There's something so lovely about that, this idea that you're closing out this moment in time. People are much more familiar with the Friday night Shabbat, and not everyone always does the Havdalah. I should say people who are more secular, obviously. But I really love Havdalah. That brings me a lot of peace and warmth going into the week. So I'm looking forward to that. That is so lovely. How about you? I've been reading the Chumash, the Hebrew Bible. I have a wonderful edition with wonderful commentary, and I'm trying to educate myself. Like, I'm I'm really trying. Oh, that's great. What part are you up to in the Bible? Abraham and Isaac. Oh, so you're still pretty early. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm moving slowly. There's a lot of commentary, so it's a lot of, like, reading and then going back and I'm trying, and I think maybe I'm starting to get it. And I know you always get it. Yes, and you always get it. I know our listeners get it too. So thanks, as always, for joining us, and we will talk to you again soon. Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross. Sarah Fredman Ader and Robert Scaramuccia. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at anxiouslypod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously and check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later.